Hi, welcome to Pivot and Thrive. This is your host, Kim Shea. It is March 4th, 2022. And today I'm talking to somebody who I haven't had this type of person on the show today, but the reason why I want to have her on, her name is Jennifer Moore, is that I know that a lot of us, as we approach this stage in our lives, start to think about spirituality and we just tend to put a little bit more effort into it. It's a good thing to be able to do that at this time in your life if that's what you want to do. And so I thought that Jennifer would be an interesting person to talk to. Now she's going to tell us that she was a hot mess and a world-class awfulizer. And I've got to know more about what that means. And now she has gone from that to being a mentor and of a mentor and spiritual guide and author and an EFT trainer for empaths, creatives and light workers. There's a lot of things to ask her about here to help us as we move through this time in our lives. So welcome Jennifer to the show. Thank you so much, Kim. It is such a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad that you, you found me and that we're having this conversation. Me too. Me too. So tell me, tell me, um, let's, let's, how did you get to where you are? And I don't know if that's going to touch on the hot mess and world-class awful. So, so, um, how I got here is, is, is inevitably as any of us who are, uh, pushing way past 50. <laughs> I can say it's a long story with many twists and turns. Yeah. And so I was thinking, um, you know, you were saying like, well, what is it to be a hot mess? So I started as I come from a long line of of people who tend to be very hypervigilant, who tend to be really anxious, who were, you know, somewhat intuitive and had sixth sense, who, who would kind of could sense things before they were happening, but also had a capacity for just worrying about everything. I come from a family of people where worry was regarded as a form of cons- of care and kind of regarded as as like almost like a virtue. And what I noticed is that, and I coined the term awfulizer a while ago, but that what an, what I see as awfulizing is where you know you can look at something and take the possibility and just ripple it forward into the worst possible scenario and the worst possible thing that it could be and then just kind of run with these visions of of an awful reality and so i started calling that awfulizing and i grew up in a family where we could really imagine the worst case scenario and so as a small child, I was very sensitive. I was very creative. I looked at the world through a really magical lens, but I also was extremely sensitive to the unspoken subtle cues that were going on around me, to the emotions that people were feeling, and just really didn't know how to process that. And I was as so many people who identify as highly sensitive and empathic will say, and many people who don't even know that they are highly sensitive and empathic will often say that they were told things like, you're overreacting, you're taking it too personally, you're, you know, you're, you've got a way too vivid imagination, stop worrying about it, letting it, let it go, you're just making too big a deal out of it. And so from a very early age, I, and, and the classic, you're being too sensitive. And so from a very early age, I was feeling like my capacity to feel and to sense all of the stuff that was going on in the world around me 
was that there was something wrong with me instead of being given the tools or the support to say, I'm picking up on things that some people don't have the ability to pick up on. And so that experience of picking up on a lot of different things that were unseen, unspoken, um, you know, often not even happening in the, you know, in, at this point in time, that experience by being told that I was be responsible for my feelings and that I was just making it up made for a fair amount of crazy making as a, as a young, young child and oh, even yeah. as a young adult, because yeah. I was picking up real things, but instead, but I was kind of being gaslit about what was going on. And instead of being able to address it and deal with it, if you're being told this is your problem, then what you're left with is trying to self-soothe and cope with things. So for me, that meant picking up cigarettes and smoking cigarettes, um, using a lot of sugar as a way to try to navigate and manage my feelings about these things, and constantly just sort of looking at myself as like, I'm the problem, how do I fix this? And when you're not the problem, but you think you are and you're trying to fix it, that is a recipe for disaster and absolutely a recipe for becoming a hot mess. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. You've got this constant internal struggle of who constant. you are and yeah. what you know. That's very interesting. And well, then, so now you you were that. And yes. then when did you decide to pivot and go a slightly different direction or did it just happen to you? So for me, you know, there have been so many moments in my life where I can see moments of pivot and moments of turn, but where I think there are some people and I'm imagining within your audience that you have some listeners who are the people who were gliding along at a certain point for most of their adult life and sort of living an ordinary life. And then suddenly, I don't know, 45, 50, 55, 60 or something, they suddenly really pivoted and did a 180 and said, this is what really matters to me. Mm -hmm. I, on the other hand, am somebody who has had sort of more of many, many, many incremental turns and shifts and significant wake up calls in my life many times in my life. And so one of the very first major wake-up calls that happened for me and first pivots was when I was in my early 20s and I was driving from Cleveland, Ohio to Kent, Ohio to visit with a friend and I nearly drove off a bridge. And I realized at that moment that I did not have control over my emotions that and I could I could end up basically harming myself or killing myself not because I deliberately wanted to but because I was so distracted and I was so depressed and I was so upset at that point in time that I wasn't going to be able to prevent myself from uh, you know basically falling into an accident and falling into a very difficult situation and that was sort of the first point where I realized I had to make a different decision. I had to do something differently. 
And that was when I sort of put the plea out to the universe of like, please show me a different way, like show me a path, show me something. And interestingly, the first step on my journey after this wake up call where I literally like was just facing a ravine and it was a very stupid thing because I was a very inexperienced driver and I had a toll ticket and you know that old the saying that wherever your eyes go, that's where your wheel goes. I was holding a toll ticket in my hand at two o'clock. And the next thing I know, I'm my wheel is turned to two o'clock and I'm facing a ravine. And so it really was inexperience that caused me to do this. But it was also an incredible gift because I realized I had to look at doing something differently. And that was sort of the moment where I asked the universe the question or sort of internal question of like, how do I do this differently? And it was within weeks that I learned um, about that I started to realize how much my relationship with sugar in particular was just destroying my life and that I really, really needed to stop binging and purging on sugar. And so that was sort of the first pivot. But there have been numerous reinventions, moments of willingness to just completely surrender and say, okay, this is no longer working for me. This relationship is no longer working for me. This um, this career choice is no longer working for me where I have made, I have made, you know, I've made turns. So my life, I would say, has been more, not necessarily a full 180 pivot as much as there's been a, you know, take a step, go forward when you hit a wall, turn left. Okay, I like that. Yeah. Well, so, okay, so you just threw it out there and it came back to you, which does yeah. happen and is, is really a, a cool experience if, if you're new to that. Um, how did your family and friends respond to your new direction or, you know, to opening that up? Is that something that you had support for? Or did you keep it to yourself? I have been incredibly lucky to have a family that has nurtured me as an artist because I started my life as identifying as a creative and identifying as an artist. And I also was the eldest, you know, the, the eldest sibling. And I was a little bossy. Like I've always had a certain kind of, like I've always known who I am and I've always had a certain, like just a part of me that has just been like, this is who I am, take it or leave it. And so within my family, I was supported in my creativity. And there was in some ways, there was kind of like more of a, oh, well, that's just Jenny. Like, you know, people sort of regarded me as weird, but I was afforded that weirdness. I was given that kind of support. And I was very, very fortunate to have, I mean, I come from a family, spiritually, interestingly, where I think so many people, um, before we got on the call, you were talking about your spiritual upbringing being a very rigid religious upbringing. Mine was the opposite. I came from, my mother was, had been raised a very, very religious Catholic. But by the time before I was born, she had opted to leave the church. And my father's family were basically sort of agnostic atheists who had kind of stepped away from the, their, their spiritual tradition. They were very casual, even like we're talking like in the 1940s and 50s, which is kind of unheard of. So my parents both identified as atheists in my family. And so for me, my parents had done a lot of 
breaking the rules and stepping outside of the container before I was before I even came into the picture. And that allowed me, that gave me a lot of freedom to be a bit rebellious and to have sort of a little bit of a wild streak. But I will say that being the only one of the few atheists in a town where there were more banks and churches than anything else, and also where spiritual orientation to atheists was considered just like ridiculous, I absolutely had to fight with the part of like, like the message that what I had to say, what I was sharing was completely like poppycock, that it was just mm. absurd, that, that this was just, you know, the, the overactive imagination of a young girl. And so there, I definitely experienced some pushback around the idea that this could even be real. Okay. But that didn't stop you or did it, did it ever stop you for a time? Um, I would say that I tried to find ways to fit in. And I was just one of those people who no matter how hard I tried to appear to be a muggle, um, if you're not familiar with that term, it's a from, <laughs> from the uh, JK Rowling world of Harry Potter and muggles yes. are the ordinary people. I, I tried really hard to be a muggle. I tried really hard to be an, a normal person, but there was something I just, I was, I was this creative, artistic, magical, whimsical little, you know, young person who was also highly sensitive and empathic. And there was a way that no matter how hard I tried to fit in, I couldn't. And I think that, and so it was almost like, I just, I want, I would have loved to have been a cheerleader and like having the sort of the normal life that people had, but it just, I just, I was such a round, I, I was just like such a square peg. I could not fit into that round hole. So did you have gifts that you were aware of at a young age? Like, uh, so you, are you, I mean, were you seeing things? Were you having Yes. Guidance. Or, so that's what I want to know. Cause I, I mean, there's a lot of people who are artistic and, you know, they yeah. have yeah, a vivid so, imagination. I'm, I'm wanting to know if there's more than that. Okay. So for me, I mean, as in hindsight, I understand that I was, I was so, let me just back up and just talk about like, just like to give some common language here. My personal experience or what I believe, like what it means to be an empath. So first okay. up, I just want to say that where what I see is that there is a spectrum of sensitivity where on one side we have these psychopaths who have no ability to pick up on or have any empathy whatsoever for any other human being on the planet. Right, and then yeah. we have the people who are so sensitive that they cannot distinguish between themselves and the rest of the world, that they are like this emotional psychic sponge. And some people are so immersed in it that there's that that even the idea of time and space starts to completely collapse and they're just picking up all the thoughts the feelings the energy the sensations that are going on in the world around them and those of us who I who I who identify as or who I would consider empaths are the people who have a tendency to be able to not just sense but actually 
feel the emotions that are going on in the world around them. And this could be picking up on the feelings within the family system. It could be picking up on the feelings within a classroom. It could be picking up on the feelings within a work situation, or it could be picking up on a larger community, the town, the city, the state. Some people are so sensitive that they're picking up on not only human experience, but global experience, like the planetary experience of like what the planet is experiencing as we're going through this global warming crisis or climate change crisis, we've changed the words. And, you know, so that it can, it can go from picking up on one or two people to picking up on absolutely everything. And so as a child, I was constantly experiencing the emotions that were going and the thoughts and the feelings and the sensations that were going on in the world around me, particularly with the people that were near me. And it wasn't until I was in, I was nine when I had my first prophetic dream. And that, and I somehow knew that this was very significant. And what had happened during my dream was that I had, I had this dream that my mom died. I just dreamed vivid, had this vivid dream that my mom had fallen over the banister of our staircase and had fell to her death. And the next day, needless to say, as a nine-year-old, I was heartbroken. I was really, really out of sorts, very depressed, very distressed. And the whole day just felt off and wrong. And at the end of that day, my mom announced at our dinner table that the mother of my very first BFF who had moved out of state like six years before this. So like I would actually probably not six years, probably four years before this. But um, my best friend's mother had died of breast cancer that night. And oh, so I had the experience of because as an empath, we don't necessarily get information through that, like, it's not the same kind of remoteness or distance where you can have a vision of something and know what you're envisioning it's more likely that you're going to experience it through your own lens and your own filter. So for me, I was experiencing the heartbreak of losing my mom when my best friend, who I hadn't seen in like four years, lost her mother. And that was when I had, so I was nine years old when I had my first prophetic dream and had that first really like that experience of really feeling other people's grief and and just picking up on something that was verifiable as well because that was very very verifiable yeah and so did they increase from then on the dreams so from there on i would have dreams intermittently um interestingly for many years my experience was when there was going to be a death in my circle i would dream that either my mother or father would die what depending on the gender of the person who was dying mm-hmm. and um that you know and thankfully unlike some people because i've heard a number of people talk about when they started having prophecy and started having these senses of like something something bad is going to happen where they shut it down i'm not really sure why i didn't shut it down and i'm also not really sure why i wasn't completely freaked out by it but i just kind of took it as matter of fact information and just kind of accepted that this was was just reality, like that I was just receiving this kind of information. 
And as I, you know, in addition to dreams, I started to be curious about telepathy. I started to be curious about cultivating my intuition. I started to be curious about learning how to develop my skills. And so by the time I was 18 years old, I had picked up my first tarot deck and I started reading tarot cards. I took to it like a, like a duck to water. It was just instant. I, wow. one of the first tarot classes I took, I found myself teaching, <laughs> I found myself teaching the class. Like it was, it was like I knew more than the teacher did. Like, huh. and I had only been reading cards for about two weeks at that point in time. So, you know, wow. I, I definitely was called and felt a very, very strong sense of curiosity. I was very much from the get go, I was very much a seeker. And you found, People, classes, teachers, was that something easy for you to find? Um, yes and no. I mean, at the very beginning, it was like, it was so, I mean, you know, we're talking for me, we're talking like the early 80s when I first started to encounter people. And I had this amazing capacity to run into other magical people. I had this amazing capacity to encounter other people on spiritual paths. And so I was 20 when I met my first teacher and started on a path of, of developing, you know, doing meditations and visualizations and working with the tarot more deliberately and starting to do ceremony and learning how to navigate this. And I was very lucky. I actually, interestingly, um, even though there is not necessarily any kind of um, historic information on my father's side about uh, inclination towards magic, I have a number of family members, extended family members, who are all... Um, you know, sort of alternative earth-centered spirituality, a lot of, a lot of orientation towards, towards sort of more of an earth-centered magical way of looking at the world. And so my, I had a cousin who was about two years older than me who t led me to and turned me on to two of the first books that started to give me some clues about things. Um, I also spent a great deal of time in the sort of the occult and paranormal section of the library in my little town's library and just reading as many books as I possibly could. And um, the very, I, I sort of this backtracking, but when I was in uh, fourth grade, I was hired for the very first time to do a love spell, which was an absolute conflict of interest on my part, <laughs> because I had a, I had a, I had a, I had just a relentless crush on the boy who wanted me to do the love spell for oh, another yeah, girl. <laughs> and, he, and he offered, and he offered to buy me this little, I don't know if you remember in the, in the five and dimes where they used to have those little tiny, like, like books that were on all kinds of different subjects. But there was this one little tiny book that was called Witchcraft and How to Do It that had a picture of a white Persian cat with like a black and white candle and a couple other things in the, on the cover of it. And it had a couple different things and I really wanted the book. So he bought me the book in exchange for doing the love spell. But what I did was I read enough of the book that I came back to him and I said, this, I can't do this for you. You're going to have to do it for yourself. <laughs> and wow. I think back to it, it, I think back to it at the time, and I think, 
I really wish that I had had the courage to say to him, I can't do this for you because I really like you and I want to be with you instead. But I was just so shy and timid. I couldn't do that at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's hurtful. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So did he do it? Do you know? I don't think he did. I think he was pretty despondent. I think he felt kind of like bummed out that I wouldn't do a love spell for him. And I still will stand by that. I I personally believe that love spells are, um, are a very morally questionable area of manipulation. And I believe very mm. strongly that it is one of the tenets of my spiritual practice is not to manipulate anybody else's free will. And, you know, you could do it an attraction spell, but to deliberately say, I want that person to love me is, uh, yeah, that goes against the laws of the universe, in my opinion. Yeah, I'll yeah. come with you there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell us now what you do. You, you're a mentor, which I'm, you help people. Who wanna- yes go down this path and you're a spiritual guide for people? Yeah. So basically, you know, going back to sort of like talking about what it meant for me being as, as highly sensitive and empathic as, as I was and being such a hot mess, what I started realizing and I slowly, the journey for me was that I started to come to understand that while I absolutely have my own triggers, that I have my own stuff, I have all of my own wounds and things that need to be healed and addressed, that in addition to that, I really needed to recognize what was mine, what was not mine, and start understanding the impact of being highly sensitive and empathic. And when I started to really understand that being empathic was affecting every aspect of my life, things really started to shift and change. And for me, it it began with making dietary changes. It began with making social changes. It began with starting to set boundaries and limits. It, it began with just looking at and, and also really choosing to care for myself in a new way and not take responsibility for things that weren't mine. And as I continued to do this, what I started to notice in the work that I was doing, because I spent, um, I, my, my past is just, I started, I, gra- I got out of art school and I became a psychic and an intuitive and I started reading tarot cards for other people. And what I became very fascinated by very quickly was not whether you were going to attract the love and the money that you were looking for, but more, what was getting in the way for you? Why weren't you attracted to? Why weren't you attracting these things? What was blocking you? What was getting in the way? So instead of it being sort of the, ah, you're going to meet a tall, dark cesspool and fall in, it was like, why do you keep on being attracted to tall, dark cesspools and falling (laughs) into them? And that led me to wanting to develop my skills as a healer. That's led me to wanting to learn how to support other people in doing their own healing work. So from being a psychic and an artist, I actually, and creating a tarot deck, I actually enrolled in seminary and went for a master's degree in psychology and religion, which in the oldest Protestant seminary in the country. 
And one of the things that was so powerful about this and at Andover Newton Theological School is that Andover Newton Theological School, at the time that I was there, was this amazing melting pot of some of the most progressive and liberal traditions, including the tradition I was raised in, which is Unitarian Universalist, which is not Christian. And you can even be an atheist, which my parents were, and still be a UU. Um, so we have that side, and then we had like very, very devout, very, very um, dogmatic Pentecostals on the other side. So being in this graduate school, I really started to learn how to be in dialogue with people with very, very different perspectives. And I pursued a master's degree with a focus on body-centered spiritual healing. And at the same time that I was doing this, I was training with another um, energy healer, shamanic healer, um, who was running a school, who was doing a 13-month training that was called the School for Body-Centered Spiritual Healing. So I, I sort of pivoted from being a psychic to being a seminarian. And then when I got out of seminary, amazingly, the universe opened up and I had another opportunity to pivot. And suddenly my career as an artist sort of returned to me because I had let it go to go to seminary. And I had this opportunity to pursue tattooing as a healing art, which I'd always had a feeling could be kind of this magical, amazing thing. Um, and suddenly this opportunity arose back in the late 90s, in 1997. And I basically learned how to tattoo. And then I spent the last, I spent 20 years from 1997 to 2017 working as a tattooer in a thriving business, brick and mortar, like world, like, I mean, I had people coming from like literally from all across the country and from some people traveling from Europe to come and get tattooed by me because I was approaching it as a healing art. And there came a point where, again, I knew that it was time for me to pivot because while I could do this work and I was approaching it as a healing art, I had introduced Reiki into my work. I had a master's degree with a, an orientation towards pastoral care, but I was also, I knew that there was something else. And so with a combination, I know I told you this was a convoluted story, with a combination of um, dealing with contracting Lyme disease in 2013 and just sort of really getting that divine download and the message on the wall, I was being guided and told that I needed to pivot, that I needed to write a book, that I needed to learn how to do things in a different way, and that I needed to offer services, not necessarily just one-on-one -on -one in the form that, because you can only tattoo one person at a time, but that I needed to be able to do this work in a broader way. And so I had discovered EFT, which stands for Emotional Freedom Techniques. Um, also, some people call it tapping. That's sort of more of a broader term mm -hmm. for it. And it's kind yeah. of like emotional acupuncture without the needles. But I had discovered that, you know, sort of around 2007, 2008, and I had been playing with it, but it didn't really grab me until around 2011, 2012, when I was driving through an ice storm with my husband and I was really anxious and I asked if he minded if I tapped while we drove and I went from a 10 of abject terror down to a zero of like, yeah, we might die. Like we might crash the car. Oh, well, it will suck, but we'll figure it out. 
And that was when I knew that there was this next piece for me and that this was the next direction that I needed to go in and that this was the next most important thing that I could do. So I started to pivot and leverage myself to be able to make a major pivot, probably the most significant pivot and true pivot I've ever made, which was to leave my thriving brick and mortar business um, in 2017 and to let go of something really good, to go for something great, but also completely uncertain. And so at this point in time, I work with other highly sensitive empathic people and I help them and I support them in recognizing what's theirs and what's not theirs and learning how to use what I've developed as the five steps of empathic mastery, which is first step is recognize, recognizing what's mine, what's not mine. Second step is release, releasing the stuff that you do not need to be carrying around anymore. And that's where EFT, emotional freedom technique and tapping, just comes in and makes a massive difference and allows us to shift things that we've been carrying around forever, that we've been really stuck with for a really long time. Then from that release, then we can start protecting ourselves. Then we can start setting um, both emotional and strategic boundaries, as well as energetic and sort of more psychic boundaries and protection. And then from that protect comes connect, because the universe abhors a vacuum. And if we really want to not continue to sort of go back to the old patterns, we need to connect with something different and new. So for me, that's about plugging into divine source and allowing that positive life force energy to come in as opposed to just sort of, you know, living sort of like, like expecting ourselves to function on a battery pack. And then the fifth step of empathic mastery is act, which has to do with really living in the world in a whole new way. So as I was working as a tattooer for 20 years, what I kept noticing was that all of the people that were coming to me had a couple things in common. And one of the main things that was in common was that they struggled with some form of anxiousness, um, unidentifiable, like they couldn't necessarily explain why life was so hard for them and why they would often feel so out of sorts. And what I started to notice was that the common thread with everybody was that they were highly sensitive and empathic, but because we live in a culture that does not necessarily give us words for this, and even since I've been doing this work, like empath has become a buzzword, but when I first started identifying as an empath and talking about this, it was not a buzzword. And so I think, you know, but what I kept finding was that the issue for so many of the people that I met and, and worked with was the taking on the thoughts, feelings, energy, sensations, fears, worries, etc. of the world around them and then not knowing what to do with it. And so that was what really led me to where I am today, which is all about the, you know, empathic mastery empire, like the whole world of like, how do I empower empaths? Like what we need are empowered empaths, not empaths who are debilitated by the pain and suffering that is going on in the world around us. Because what I believe is that when we are psychic sponges who are taking in all of the thoughts, feelings, negativity, like just the struggle that is going on in the world around us, 
all we do is contribute to the problem. Like sympathetic suffering only adds to the problem. It does not make it better. And that in order for us to be part of the solution, instead of just exacerbating an already stressed out world, we need to master our empathy, learn how to calm ourselves down and start radiating calmness and peace into the world as opposed to absorbing the negativity that then we just amplify. So at this point in time, that shows up in a number of different forms. I have a free Facebook group called the Empathic Mastery Circle, where I teach free master classes every single month. Often I teach more than one. We just did a piece the other day, actually on the new moon, for sending all kinds of love, um, transmuting the fear within our own bodies, and then sending love and light out to Ukraine and really just activating the love body within us and activating and connecting to the divine sacred heart and just sending, radiating love. So that just happened the other day. So I do, you know, things like, like podcast, I have the podcast, the Empathic Mastery Show. I've got the Facebook group. I do my best to have a consistent email newsletter that goes out and, and things on YouTube and Instagram. And then I also wrote the book Empathic Mastery. I've also contributed to two additional books with the Wellness Universe for um, the Wellness Universe Guides to Self-Care with 25 Tools for Stress Relief in one. Another one is 25 Tools for Goddesses. And then I work with people in groups and I also work with people one-on-one. -on -one. And um, the two kinds of groups that I do is I have the Empathic Mastery Academy. And then I also, once a year, I teach other people how to be spectacular EFT trainers. I mean, not trainers, uh, EFT practitioners. I'm the trainer. They're the practitioners. <laughs> but I teach people how to be really good EFT practitioners. Because EFT is truly magical and truly just one of the most amazing things I have ever, ever encountered in my entire life. Really? Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Let me go back, if I can, to the tattooing as a spiritual art. So, first of all, would that be somebody who comes in and wants more like a spiritual type of tattoo, like maybe a yin-yang circle or some, I don't know, something well, so that it's, appears, or like, would it be like, you know, so like it's a, a very sexy so the woman way on their that, arm? So the way that I approach tattooing, I was, I had a, we had a custom studio. So what that means is that, you know, there's two kinds of tattooing in the world. There's um, what's called flash, which is where somebody would walk into sort of your standard street shop and like pick a picture on the wall and say, I want that. And then you would yeah. get that. But then there was the kind of studio that we had, which is called a, a custom tattoo studio, where every single design is custom designed and drawn and, and implemented for the individual. Mm. And so the way that I did tattoos was that a person would come in and, and I had people knew that I did this as a spiritual, as a spiller, from a spiritual perspective and also as a healing art. And I would say that 85 to 90% of my clientele came to me specifically to do the work and because they knew okay. what I was doing. Um, there were just a few people who sort of slip under the cracks where they'd seen my portfolio and they're like, I love your work. It's so pretty. I want some flowers. And they sort of ended up coming in and, and most of the time they ended up getting the spiritual experience despite themselves mm. or anyway. But the way that it would work was that I would start with a conversation with somebody about what their intention was, what it was that they were looking to do, what they were looking to heal. 
And so we would start with like, there was all kinds of components that were involved in it. You know, if somebody was oriented towards um, an Eastern practice, you know, then maybe like different cultural images might be relevant. Like if somebody was into yoga, then sort of more like chakra images and, you know, like some of the Hindu gods might be relevant. If somebody was very oriented towards a Celtic history and, a, and their European background, then it might have been Norse imagery or Celtic imagery or Celtic knot work. If somebody was doing something that was like in honor of a beloved dead, a memorial piece that was about somebody who'd crossed over, then it might have been something like a portrait of that person or some kind of object or something that they shared, some kind of relevant thing. So there's no specific visual image that is like a spiritual tattoo. It's much more about what is precise and specific to the individual that they need to express this. And because I had a background in pastoral care, because I had, um, like at that point in time, over 20 years of experience as a psychic, and I also was, uh, am a Reiki master and trained in energy healing, I was taking people's intention. And then I was also using my, my skills and using the whole experience of sitting down and being tattooed as a way for somebody to really move through a healing experience. And what I came to understand was that, you know, sometimes when we, you know, tattooing causes, you know, it, it's inflicting, uh, it's inflicting a wound, you know, you're, you're poking holes in somebody's skin, and you are causing them to bleed, and they need to heal from it. But that when we, when I was doing this with this kind of deliberate intent, a lot of times it was not about putting pain in as much as it was about drawing pain out. And it was also very much about activating healing that extended far beyond the experience of this minor, tiny little bit of healing that needed to, needed to happen. In some ways, it's kind of like homeopathy in the idea of, you know, a very, very minor, like, um, you're being exposed to something very mild that activates the healing system to address something much bigger than than that one little thing is. Okay, I see. Yeah. Right, that makes sense. So then, when you're saying a lot of the people who came in to get the tattoos were sensitive, but but these were the kind of people who were drawn to you. These are the anyway. people who were drawn to me. I had okay. I had set up an intention when I decided I was going to do this work that that just the right people were going to find their way to me. And like, I just sort of imagined myself as sort of this beacon, this lighthouse in the middle of Portland, Maine, mm. where people would be attracted to do work with me. And it was completely magical. It was completely word of mouth. It was, I had struggled so mightily with my business as a psychic and as an intuitive before and even as a healer when I was before I went to graduate school, I had trained in breath work as well. And I was constantly finding myself struggling with getting the word out. But when I started tattooing, it was like I was booked within a couple of years. I was booking six to eight months out in advance, just nonstop for the entire, oh. like pretty much for my entire career. I was, I was just like, didn't even have to think about it. It was just all I had to do was get up and show up and do my work. It was an absolute dream job from that standpoint. And especially because so many sensitive people absolutely loathe marketing. It was like, 
all I had to do was just put up pictures of the tattoos I did and people would see the beauty of them and they would be, they would tell their friends and they'd tell their friends and so on and so on. And they just kept coming. It was really lovely. That is really, that's really beautiful. Yeah, Yeah. I like that. I like that whole approach to it. And so giving it up, I will say, you know, since this is, this show is about pivoting and thriving, making the decision to step away from the golden goose, like we were a world, we were a, you know, and like we were regionally, like we were an award-winning studio. We were like very, very highly regarded and making the decision to step away from a career that was meeting my needs, that I was very happy doing, that was really, really good, because I knew that I was supposed to be doing something different, was not something that I took lightly. And I honestly got the writing on the wall. The writing start started to like appear, the ghost writing started to appear on the wall probably in about 2013. It became abundantly clear that my days were numbered in 2014. But due to the circumstances of both sort of like pivoting, leveraging myself, preparing myself, but also because of my responsibility as one of the owners of the business, I had a lease that I was beholden to. It took me from 2014 until winter solstice of 2017 before I left my brick and mortar business and pivoted out of it towards more of the work I'm doing now. Okay. That's interesting. And um, I imagine, you know, in hindsight, it looks good that you did what you did when you did it, because if you'd (sighs) waited to go to, you know, go through COVID before you, 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 you would have said been out of business, not of money from, from your, from your mouth to God's ears. I mean, I am so grateful that I took, I listened and I you followed listened, yeah. the guidance because I knew, you know, by the time, by the time I, by, t- by the time COVID hit, I had stopped I had already been, I finished up the last bits of tattoos over the course of like 2018 into into the early part of 2019. And I was completely done with the work by the time we COVID, you know, I published my book in the autumn of 2019, slipped and fell on some ice and got a concussion in December of 2019. And so when we went into lockdown in March of, of 2020, I was already prepared for it. My business had already pivoted to a completely virtual business. I was working entirely. I was, I had already pivoted to working with groups and individuals, but entirely, um, uh, virtual. And so I moved seamlessly. My business moved seamlessly with the pandemic, but I have a number of, of tattooing colleagues who, like, they were shut down for something like from March until late July, all of the tattooers in the state of Maine were shut down because, because of regulations. I mean, the irony was that hair salons were able to open a lot sooner. And the parrot, the irony of this is that you're in a lot closer, you're a lot closer to somebody's face when you're cutting their hair than when you're giving them a tattoo on their ankle. But because of society's assumptions about tattooing, there were, there were more, there was more hesitancy to let the tattoo studios be open. Mm. But yes, I was beyond grateful that I had listened to the guidance and I pivoted when I did. 
And I will say, I don't know if you have this experience in talking with people, but I think that one thing that I see happening for so many people is they see the writing on the wall, they don't pivot when they're being told to pivot. And then basically, by the time the universe is sort of like, okay, we told you you're going to pivot, we told you you needed to pivot, you're not pivoting, we're going to pivot you for, you know, we're going to make we're going to pull the rug out from under you and make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know it's it's scary to make a change. So sometimes it's just easier to stay where you are. But exactly, things, things do happen that way. So, um, well, let me let me before we go further where I want to go next, I, I'll ask you: Can you define what a light worker is? Because you you mentioned that too. That is a great question. I mean, you know, I and I'll just say I think it's such a ubiquitous term that, like, you know, so that I think it's 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 just one of those things it's almost like it's used so much does it even mean anything for me what a light worker is is a person who a is committed to their own personal work so that they are a clear channel for divine source to come through and to radiate love and light into the world and what that means is having the willingness to own our own triggers what that means is having the willingness to recognize when the sense of urgency to do something is coming from our own discomfort with, with, with discomfort. And, um, that the need to rush into rescue is really about us, not about the world outside of ourselves. And that the true light worker is somebody who is really committed to being in flow and holding space for the work for for truly what is which which includes discomfort as well as comfort and then from that what we do is you know I was describing the ceremony we did the other day for Ukraine and for me we enter through our own lens and through the places where we're still sticky or stuck or feeling something uncomfortable and transmuting it through ourselves and then from that place of purifying ourselves, we then can express the love and radiate it out as a solution to the world. So I, I really see the light, you know, true light workers are the people who are deeply committed to not just sending like, like, like fluffy bunny unicorn love and light out into the world, but really committed to recognizing their own triggers, recognizing their own trauma, addressing the legacies of trauma that have been passed down for thousands of generations that we have inherited. There is, you know, more and more information that is coming out now where we're really starting to understand that unresolved, unreconciled trauma is passed down in our DNA. And I personally believe that we are at a point now where we are, we are hitting critical mass as a species where all of the trauma that we've been pushing down, suppressing and compartmentalizing for probably 5,000 years now is it's like we've hit a, we have, we have hit like, we've hit a point in the pressure cooker where there is no, we cannot, we just cannot keep it compressed anymore and stuff is just popping out and demanding that we address it. And I believe that the light workers are the ones who have the willingness to be willing to show up and deal. Okay, that's interesting. That um, resonates with some other stuff I've been learning lately, so that I like that. For somebody who is reaching this point, middle age, and they want to retire, and um, this is something maybe that they've had a feeling for, or they're just suddenly drawn to it, 
What would you recommend for somebody like that? How do they go further? What What is the next step for somebody like that who's just kind of exploring? Um, do they read? Do they take classes? What should they do? Okay, so I think, you know, the answer to that actually, in my opinion, has to do with recognizing for one thing, what is your dominant way of processing information? And so, you know, it's like, and knowing yourself well enough to know that, like some people really thrive in community and thrive in being in, you know, being in a group setting and doing stuff with a class or doing stuff where you're like part of a, uh, you know, a meditation group or you're part of a martial arts class or a yoga class or something like that. And that really works. Some people thrive by listening to audiobooks. Some people thrive by and and I will say a really great, very good first step if you feel you're identifying as highly sensitive and empathic and what I'm saying is really resonating is I've got a 12-hour audiobook called Empathic Mastery that I would highly recommend. But I think what is important is recognizing are you are you somebody who thrives by do you are you a slow processor or a quick processor? Are you somebody who learns by being in groups or do you learn by being an individual? Do you, are you a visual learner? Are you an auditory learner? Are you a kinesthetic learner? And all of these things are going to determine how are you going to absorb this information in the most effective way? And so I would not say that read this one book and you'll get the answer as much as find what is the way you learn best and then find what gets you excited. What jazzes you? Does yoga excite you? Does meditation excite you? Does working with oracle cards or tarot excite you? Does shamanism excite you? Does learning energy healing excite you? Like, what is the thing that feels really resonant for you? And I will say for people who are coming from sort of breaking away from a more traditional Christian background, especially if you're breaking away from a Catholic background, and if you happen to have a deep love for the Blessed Mother, um, I and many, I have a number of, I am I'm part of a very beloved community of people who are devote, dedicated to the forgotten earth wisdom of the rosary and praying the rosary in a way that is extremely spiritual, spiritually grounding and very, very, it's like not about the Catholic Church at all, but very much about really reclaiming our sacred, holy, personal relationship with the divine. Mm-hmm. But what I will say is that for me, Your relationship with your higher power is just that, your relationship with your higher power. And there is no right way or wrong way to do this, except if you're not listening to yourself. Like the most important thing that I can say is it has to feel right to you. I have my relationship, you have your relationship, and it's like, there is, and, and so really like listening to and following your joy. I was working with a client just the other day and we came up with a slogan for sort of her North Star and what it is. And it was follow the sparkle. And so I actually, I just designed a t-shirt that says basically follow your sparkle. And I would say that that really is the advice I would give to all of the listeners, all of your listeners is follow your sparkle, 
Go for the thing that makes you happy. Do that one first little incremental step and see how it leads you to the next thing, the next thing, and the next thing. And also, I will say that in a world where slick marketing has become an, you know, has become a unfortunate substitute for credentials and accountability and skill. Just, you know, do, do your due diligence. Like if you have sort of a weird sort of squeak, you know, feeling about somebody, like listen to that part of you. Don't override your own concerns just because somebody is running like, you know, workshops where they've got thousands of people showing up and paying like, you know, many thousand dollars to attend for a weekend. Like, listen to what feels right to you and don't be afraid to say this just isn't for me. That's really good advice. Like, cause if you're, if you're coming in green and you really don't know where you're going and so you might be tempted to go one way that maybe is more popular, but you haven't checked it out and gone to well, and I think your feelings on it. I think there's so much, you know, unfortunately, I think there's so much um, spiritual bypassing that 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 does happen within the spiritual community. And if that's not a term, you know, I could I could unpack this a little bit if you'd like. Maybe a little bit. Yeah, because I'm not really yeah. sure what you mean. Yeah. So spiritual bypassing is an interesting concept because basically it's sort of the idea of like, you know, as long as I'm taking the supplements and I'm like loving and lighting and meditating my way through it, that like we create our own reality and none of these awful icky things are happening. And um, that it's sort of this idea of just kind of being all up in this, this like, as long as I keep broadcasting joy and radiance, then I don't have to worry about the problems that are going on in the world around us. And what I, and, and unfortunately, especially at the onset of the pandemic, there were a number of spiritual teachers and people who I really hoped more of who definitely kind of went down the rabbit hole of bypassing where even to the point of basically saying like this whole thing, the pandemic's not real. And I will say as the daughter of a man who died from COVID, this thing is real. Like, you know, it, it is a real thing. And, um, but spiritual bypassing is interesting because on one hand, spiritual bypassing is kind of like denying the body, denying the physical, denying the realities that are not your own and sort of like just kind of being like, well, they chose that reality. Therefore, I'm not worried about the starving children in Ethiopia. Um, but on the other side of spiritual bypassing is the denial of spirituality altogether and the sort of basically saying, you know, there's no merit to any of this whatsoever. And I think that when it comes to looking for spiritual teachers and when it comes to looking for a path that is grounded, what we really want to be finding are paths where there is both action, there's both spiritual awareness and simultaneously action and solutions and strategies that are being put into place. So over the course of the last two years, I have personally found myself really being attracted to the leaders, the thought leaders and the spiritual teachers who are speaking truth to injustice, who are addressing stuff that is going on and not pretending that everything is hunky-dory. So for example, Marianne Williamson is somebody who I've been deeply respecting because she has been speaking so much to injustice. She has been speaking so much to, like she is putting posts out and saying, I pray for a solution in Ukraine. 
You know, I pray for, you know, she is recognizing that there are problems going on. Another person I've really been respecting is Lissa Rankin, who wrote Sacred Medicine, just her has a new book coming out called Sacred Medicine. And Lissa was one of the people who was really talking about, again, it's like we cannot ignore the responsibility as a, as as interconnected you know like as as being like like as as citizens of this earth to like care for each other and so i think that the really important thing to be looking for when you're looking for a teacher is are they really grounded are they speaking truth to the whole thing are they offering solutions and also do you feel like you're being pressured into spending more money with them like you know, are they, is, have, have they created sort of a system where it's like constantly about like, okay, you know, you pay for this thing and now you need to go on to this next thing and you're not really going to come into the evolution or the reality of what you are until you graduate up to this next level and this next level and this next level. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't pay us as teachers because, you know, we have to make a living as well, but I do think it's more about, um, the, the consensuality versus a hard sell. And if you feel like somebody's trying to hard sell you into something, um, for me personally, that's a real sign of this may not be where you want to be. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point too, because I mean, the laborer is worthy of his hire. So there's nothing wrong with paying somebody who's giving you some help, taking their classes, buying their books, whatever. But there are people out there who are you know, for lack of a better word, scamming people and yeah. or taking a lot of money and it's not really it's not really a fair exchange so for what you're gonna get. So Well and uh, one I of the things that I really look for as a professional and as a teacher when I'm teaching EFT, I really one of my main focuses is on safety and on really being very mindful and cautious about how we approach things. Because when people start entering into the spiritual dialogue, and when people start really doing that deep spiritual seeking, they're very vulnerable, and they're very tender. And this is something that is a precious responsibility for any of us who are practitioners, any of us who are facilitators, any of us who are teachers. And what I have unfortunately heard way too many horror stories about is people's cavalier approach with people where instead of really um, honoring and cherishing that vulnerability and holding space for people in their vulnerability in a way that keeps them safe, where people, um, people do things that make people feel like far less safe and also where they feel like it's like it's their fault that they're not doing the right thing. There is a documentary that I will refrain from naming to protect the guilty um, on Netflix that is talking about a fairly well-known um, uh, spiritual teacher or motivational teacher. And there is a scene in this documentary where they have a room full of about 2,500 people and this woman, they bring her up on stage with her cell phone. She has a conflicted relationship with her boyfriend at the time. They bring her up on the stage with her cell phone. And this teacher takes the phone and has a, and basically breaks up with the boyfriend in front of 2,500 people. 
and sort of like, for one thing, disempowers this woman by doing the work for her, but for yeah. another thing, basically makes a unilateral decision about what she should be doing that had nothing to do with where she was personally at. And the lack of boundaries, the lack of, the, the lack of safety, like, I just was like floored when I saw this. And that is absolutely something as we, as nowadays, like marketing has really slipped into the spiritual community and the spiritual world. And there are people who really know how to market to and speak to people. I think that what has happened is that there are people who are like, just pay me $25,000 for this six month program and I will change your life. And, um, well, absolutely, there are people whose lives are changed by paying $25,000 and being part of a six-month program, and it really, really, really does make a difference. What I personally have found is that it's this, it's part of it is about the tactics of anytime somebody starts saying things to you, like if you are looking at your thing and you're like, I really, I really am not sure about doing this training or this or this program or whatever, or I just don't have $25,000 to spend on this thing or whatever. If the answer that comes back to you is, well, then you're just not willing, or you're just not ready, or you're just not, you're just not working hard enough on it. You don't want it enough. If any of those kinds of sort of like turning it on somebody and saying, well, I'm just trying to empower you to step into your power when somebody honestly knows like it is not right for them, then that's just really icky. And I would say, please run, you know, like do not walk to the nearest exit, run to the nearest exit and just like, do not give your money to somebody who is pressuring you into participating in something that you're really ambivalent about. Good teachers will basically be providing something and be like, I'm here if I'm the right fit for you, then I really invite you to join me. And if I'm not the right fit for you, or this isn't the right time for you, or your resources need to be feeding your kids, then I support you in that. That's nice. That's all really solid and sound information. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would want to throw out as advice for retirees that you think they should know? As they move through this. So I think actually what immediately comes to my mind is, especially for retirees, I think that, you know, we live as, as Westerners, we live in a productivity oriented society and we live in a society that is like so much about achievement and accomplishment. And what I would say is that this is a marathon, not a sprint and that you do not have, like, go for what brings you joy and delight and bliss and feels good and allows your body, you know, like there's that poem, um, Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. And there is this line, you know, of like, um, letting the soft animal of your flesh love what it loves. And I think that the thing is that as a society, we are so oriented towards achievement. And even within spirituality, there is this sort of idea that like we're supposed to like master mindfulness. And there is actually a phenomenon within within um, Western Buddhism that's really fascinating where Westerners coming into Buddhism are so achievement oriented and so accomplishment oriented that they often end up experiencing a lot more anxiety because it's it's 
it's still about the goal of accomplishing or achieving nirvana than it is just sort of like really truly allowing ourselves to be. And so I guess what I would say is that this is absolutely about you've worked your butt off your whole life. You have done the work and this is your invitation to say yes to a, to what you intuitively, instinctively know in your body is right. That it is okay to rest. That it is okay to slow down. That it is okay to listen to the still small voice within you that guides you away from something that might be more shiny, that might be more like slick and like looks better on paper but that it is okay and that the most powerful spiritual practice, I think, is the practice of self-care and rest and truly honoring your own body's rhythms and honoring your relationship with the earth. And so, you know, it's not about, this is not about like being the CEO of spirituality. And I also would say that as a healer and as somebody who trains other people to be healers, if you are just awakening to doing your own inner work, if you're just really starting to deal with wounds from your childhood and possibly ancestral wounds that go back for generations, allow yourself to heal and allow yourself to do that really deep work first before you decide to take up the mantle to become a healer for other people. Like, it's like, do your work and luxuriate in it and, and, and relax into the fact that you are now as a retiree, you have the space and you deserve to claim it. So that would be my advice. That's really, really good advice. Thank you very much. You are so welcome. Jennifer, I have tremendously enjoyed talking to you, and this this podcast flew by. I can't believe how I long know, Kim. I'm looking really at the enjoyable. time, and I'm like, oh my god, it's been so long. This has been such a rich conversation. I it really it, it has been a delight talking with you too. Really, thank good. you. Yeah, I could go on more here. I but, could um, too. We will yeah. we'll, we'll wrap it up. But <laughs> yeah, for those of you who've been listening, I'm sure you enjoyed it as much as I did, and um, so I will have all of. Uh, Jennifer Moore's links in the show notes, and there are a lot here for you to click on so you can go find her and see what works for you. And I think even if if you're not thinking exactly everything that she's talking about is your is your area, I think she's got enough information here that will help you to find where you are supposed to be. So yes. I, I think I would recommend her. Yeah. Thank you so much. Well, and I'm a strong believer in like getting resources out to people and helping people to discover what is possible. And I will say regarding EFT, which we could do an entire show just on EFT, but regarding EFT, I approach it it, from a standpoint of particularly oriented towards the highly sensitive, empathic and spiritual person. But there are people who are approaching EFT in a substantially more scientific and clinical way. And there are people like there is an EFT practitioner out there for everybody. And if I'm not your cuppa, if I'm a little too woo and weird, you know, like, which I totally get, I'm not for everybody. 
but it is a tool that it's amazing for pain management. It's amazing for addressing all kinds of difficult past events. It's amazing for like dealing with mindset and limiting beliefs and thoughts and persistent thoughts. It's incredible for phobias. It's incredible for cravings. It's incredible for addiction. It is being used in the, um, in with veterans for PTSD. Um, it's being used in the VA. At this point in time, it is an incredibly powerful tool and it can change your life. So I would definitely encourage you and a place where you can find out more about EFT um, in all of its different flavors is at the international website, EFTinternational.org, which is the organization that I am actually an accredited master trainer for. So just wanted to make a plug for it because it's so powerful. Yeah, that is really that's really impressive. All right. Well, thank you so much for that, too. So uh, I am looking forward to keeping in touch with you and following along with you on your Facebook page and learning more of what you have to offer. So thank awesome, you, Jennifer, for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was really just a delight. Such a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Pivot and Thrive. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you know anybody who you think would be a great subject for this podcast, please have them contact me. They can go to my website, retirementpurposecoach.com. And at the bottom of that front page, there is a contact section and they can just reach me right there. I'd love to hear from them. I am a certified retirement coach, so if you need any help from me with your retirement so that you have your own success story, you can contact me there as well. I'd like to thank Bokuwa and Wizzy2K for the use of their song, Will You Stay With Me? I have the link to that song in the show notes. Have an excellent rest of your day, whatever it is that you're doing. I hope it's purposeful. You'll enjoy your life so much better if that's your focus. Bye for now.